we can learn a lot from Stephen. So let's take a good look at his effective but brief ministry for the Lord this morning. And the first thing we notice about his witness is that they didn't like it. They didn't like it. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, beginning in the 8th verse of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen did not limit his witness for Christ to his service in the church. Now, last week we discovered that he was appointed one of the first deacons in the church. He had been given the responsibility of serving tables, caring for the widows in the Jerusalem church. But here he is out preaching, performing miracles, and witnessing for the Lord. Now, no doubt he met his responsibilities as a deacon. But he did not allow that to be the sum total of his ministry. You know, we sometimes get the idea that if we're doing something in church, that's all we need to do for the Lord. But that's not true. We are all called to be salt and light in the world, to be witnesses for Christ. Stephen understood that and was determined to exercise all the gifts God had given to him. Luke says he was full of grace and power. And back in verse 5, he said Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't content to only serve tables. He could and he would serve, but he could also preach. And the apostles had apparently given him the ability to perform signs and miracles, so he did it all didn't do it only at church. He did it outside church. And he may have actually focused his attention on the synagogue of freedmen, former slaves, Hellenistic Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. It's possible that this was the synagogue where he had worshipped as a Jew before coming to Christ. And if that's true, he apparently offended some of his old friends and associates 
with his witnessing. They didn't like what he had to say, but they couldn't answer him. They couldn't cope with with his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The Holy Spirit was guiding him, but they did not want to accept what he was saying. It, It meant they would have to change, like he had changed, and they didn't want to change. Since he wouldn't go away, and they couldn't refute him, they decided to silence him. They secretly induced, they bribed men to make charges against him, charging that they had heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God himself. Doing so, they were able to stir up the people, the elders and the scribes, who dragged him before the Sanhedrin, the 70 judges of the Supreme Court that we've seen before. And they formally accused him of incessantly, now I do like that, incessantly speaking against the temple, the holy place, and the law. Now these these were total fabrications. Jesus had said the temple would be destroyed. And speaking of himself, he said if they would destroy the temple of his body, he would raise it up in three days. And since he came to fulfill the law, the customs handed down from Moses would now have to change. The old covenant had been replaced by the new covenant. And if Stephen taught the things that the writer of Hebrews later wrote, how the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system and tabernacle were only shadows, pictures of the reality that came through the ministry of Christ, and how he was vastly superior to everything that had gone before, you can see why they would be upset. So he was brought before the council. And when they looked at him, they noticed he had the face of an angel. Now, I'm not sure what that means. Some of us, when we first met our wives, we had a similar vision. I don't know what they saw in Stephen's face, but I think it was more than just a description of his physical facial features. Perhaps just by looking at him and seeing his demeanor, they could sense that he was a messenger of God. But they overlooked the obvious because they did not want to accept the message that he had been sent to deliver. The high priest did, however, Give him the opportunity to defend himself by asking, are these things so? And with that opening, Stephen began a long recital of Old Testament history with a point. The point being that his accusers were just like their fathers. Now we're going to have a long passage of scripture to look at this morning. But this is what Stephen said to them. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised 
that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there passed away he and our fathers. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for some of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God and was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. And when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight, and he approached to look more closely there, and there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your congregation. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers and until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. And the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Pretty strong sermon. 
pretty pointed. You know, we probably would not defend ourselves with a long recital of history, but Stephen knew that they'd listen to that. And if he could make a point through it, he might have a chance. Besides, he had been accused of blasphemy against Moses and God, and he was showing his high regard for Jewish history by recounting the founding of their nation. Stephen began with a look at Abraham's call and pointed out how God appeared to him and made a covenant with him in a land other than Palestine opening up the possibility that God's not quite as tied to Jerusalem and one land as the Jews might like to think. Then he took a look at the 12 patriarchs, sons of Jacob, the special attention given to Joseph, the brother who was rejected, but the one through whom God was doing a special work. And then the bulk of his sermon dealt with Moses, recounting how God raised him up, equipped him, and called him to be the deliverer of his people. In spite of that, however, the people rejected him when he first attempted to deliver them from oppression, and they continued to reject his leadership even after 40 years in the wilderness. Indeed, the Jews had a history of rejecting those God sent to deliver them. And Stephen made that abundantly clear. He also reminded the council that Moses himself had prophesied the coming of another prophet like himself. So it was not blasphemy against Moses to speak of a new deliverer being sent from God. He then pointed out that God had dwelt in the tabernacle before the temple and that in reality no house made with human hands could contain him. So declaring that God now wanted to live in the hearts of his people instead of a temple of stone should not have been viewed as blasphemy. At that point, the tone of his sermon changed. And he went from a recitation of history to an accusation against his accusers. He accused them of being just like their fathers in rejecting the Holy Spirit and persecuting the prophets. Now whether he had sensed that they were about to silence him having gotten the point of his sermon or he just knew that his defense was pointless, he boldly took the offensive. He called his accusers and judges stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were stiff-necked like rebellious oxen who refused to be yoked and stubborn mules who wouldn't be bridled. And while they outwardly had the sign of God's covenant, it was a sham because their hearts were uncircumcised and they refused to listen to God's voice. All diplomacy had gone by the wayside. He ended his sermon by declaring that they were in fact murderers of the righteous one 
sent to save them. And that they were the ones who didn't keep the law. Not him. So how did they re react to his sermon? They killed him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God cried with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Rather than repent, they reacted like mad dogs, gnashing their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, remain calm by focusing on the Lord. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and, and something else. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That vision, at, at least we assume it was a vision, assured Stephen that Jesus was watching he had risen to his feet and that he was in control at the right hand of God. When he shared this with the council, they went crazy. They cried aloud, covering their ears so they couldn't hear what he was saying. And they rushed upon him. This was not a very solemn assembly of respected judges. Gamaliel, the Pharisee who had intervened when the council was intending to seek the death penalty for the apostles, was either not there or was swept up with the rest of them. And this time, risking the wrath of Rome, they illegally took matters into their own hands. They drove Stephen out of the city and began stoning him. As an aside, Luke notes that the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul, a man who would later become the Apostle Paul. He doesn't linger on that fact, and neither will we. He continues the narrative, noting that even in the face of death, Stephen was confident of God's love, and entrusted himself to his risen Lord. As they continued stoning him, he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive 
my spirit. And he bore no resentment toward his executioners. Falling on his knees, he prayed for those who were hurling stones at him. Following Jesus' example, he cried out with a loud voice so all could hear, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. What a way to describe a horrifically violent death. He fell asleep. Even Dr. Luke seems to be afraid to tell it like it is. Stephen died. And it was a horrible death. Or was it? Or was it? Just last week, I read a very interesting and thought-provoking book entitled Death and Afterlife, a Theological Introduction. In it, the author reviews belief in life after death as understood and taught in both the Old and New Testaments, as well as throughout church history. And he explores beliefs concerning the nature of the soul, resurrection, and eternal life. He addresses the challenges that come from a materialistic worldview and from the natural and social sciences. And he writes from an unapologetic Christian point of view, seeking to restore confidence in the belief of life after death, enabling believers to have the faith necessary to die well. In fact, his final chapter is entitled, Dying Well. And he uses the death of Stephen as an example of a good death. I really appreciate what he said. I want you to hear it. What is a good death? One way to understand a good death is to contrast it with a bad death. What is a bad death? Certainly, a death with unrelenting pain is a bad death. So is an isolated death, cut off from friends and family, which may happen in hospitals. So is a death that cuts short the hopes and dreams of our lives. So is dying in fear, in hopelessness, or in depression. Finally, most of us would think that dying in a state of mental decline or childlike dependency is an unbecoming death. So the converse of a bad death would be a death 
without pain, surrounded by friends and family, our life's goals achieved without fear, hopelessness, or depression. Such a death would seem to be a good death. But some deaths that have been recognized as good by generations of Christians do not fit this pattern. What about the deaths of martyrs? Stephen was stoned to death for preaching to the Jewish council. He died a physically painful and degrading death in front of a hostile crowd. Yet before his death, he had a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which led directly to his stoning. So even though Stephen died a painful death, at the hands of a murderous mob, the church has held up his death as a model of heroic witness in dying. Finally, of course, there is the death of Jesus himself. As painful, agonizing, shameful, lonely, and terrible a death as we can imagine. Was Jesus' death a good death? It's hard to say yes, but it's also hard to say no. According to almost any criteria of a good death, we would have to say that Jesus' death was terrible. Yet the early Christians interpreted his death as a victory that reconciles sinful humanity to God and defeated the power of death and Satan. Seen in this way, his death was a triumph, a victory that was much more important than his suffering and humiliation. The examples of the martyrs and Jesus' own death lead me to conclude that what is essential in a good death from a Christian point of view is dying into God. Yes, it is good to die at a ripe old age with one's hopes fulfilled. Yes, it is important to reconcile with family and loved ones to repair old rifts, and above all, to forgive. But as the deaths of the martyrs and of Jesus show, it is essential to die reconciled and at one with God, having fulfilled God's will in one's life, even if one dies at an early age. Death, then, ought to be the time when we can surrender ourselves completely to God in faith and trust. It may be the supreme trial of our lives, but it is also the supreme opportunity. Entering the shadow of death, we can see more easily what really counts. Money cannot carry us through death. 
Nor can possessions, fame, family, or friends. In the end, what lasts is love. God's love for us, our love for God, and the mutual love between ourselves and others. In death, we are faced with the ultimate moment of choice. A moment in which we decide whether to entrust ourselves to God. Stephen died a good death. And so can we. If we will surrender ourselves completely to God in faith and trust. And we do not have to wait until the moment of death to do that. We can surrender in faith to a loving Savior even now. And if we'll do so, and if through our life, however long or short it might be, we grow more and more in love with him, more and more confident of him, when we face the moment of death, and we all will face the moment of death, our society tries to ignore that. But we're all going to die. Unless, of course, Jesus comes back before that moment and we're changed in a moment. But we are most likely <laughs> all going to walk through that valley. It's not going to be pleasant. It may not be what we would like it to be. It may not meet all the expectations that we create in our mind that would enable it to be called a good death. But even a death that the world sees as a horrible, violent death, a death filled with we acknowledge that we are being held in the hand of Christ. That he has prepared for us a place. And that we are entering into his presence. We've got a lot of guests here today. I hope I haven't freaked you out. We don't always talk about death. In fact, we probably don't talk about it enough. And I read something a year or two ago that I've, I've shared in Bible studies that seems a little strange. I, I read in, in a book, I, a, a young preacher said, you know, I, people think that my job is to teach them to live well. He says, it's not. It's to teach them to die well. That sounds so morbid. Is it not true? Ultimately, that is what we have in Christ. 
Don't let anyone take that hope away from you. And it's my prayer that when you say you've surrendered your all to him, hear him now. That that surrender will be evident in the moment of death. I pray it's true of me.